You're tuned to Radio BCC and this is the Six O'Clock Swill. Yes, the Six O'Clock Swill, a lone island of sanity in the rising tide of turbulent lunacy that passes for civic debate. Joining me on this low-lying atoll to help us build a wall of sandbags against the surging tide is Tim Blair. Joining us from the central coast of New South Wales, Simon Collins from Sydney. I'm Nick Cater and I'm joining you today from a balcony of the Almurra Hotel looking over the beautiful Clarence River, 15 kilometres downstream from Grafton, with the sweet northern breeze floating down across the border from Queensland. Speaking of which, our special guest tonight is Matt Canavan from Queensland, a senator and passionate advocate for the banana bending state. But first, my jaw, my, in fact, my entire mouth, Tim, is just about recovering. I can just feel <laughs> some movement back in my lips after experiencing your chicken wing barbecue a, a week ago. Perhaps you'd like to explain what you put into that thing so that you know people will know to avoid it in the future oh you get used to it mate oh i um my covert hobby was uh, learning how to do proper you know texan whatever style barbecue so when nick turned up last week obviously i prepared some ribs how did you rate the ribs nick the ribs were superb the ribs were, the, the wings were great it was just the heat yes well I, I softened him up with the ribs, listeners. Um, it's an old barbecuing trick. You lure them in with the ribs. And then, <laughs> pow, comes the impact of the hot wings. Uh, the hot wings recipe, I, I'm not sure. Can we put links up? Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll organise maybe via the website. It's a very simple recipe if you're a, a barbecuing kind of person. It's just a one hour for the chicken wings. But uh, we, we use a, an ingredient called Frank's Hot Sauce. And there's one variety of it, the extra hot, which uh, I've, I've now realised is beyond Nick's tolerance level. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this is not a cooking show, of course. We're here to discuss the serious major issues of the week, the international and national news, and put some perspective on it. So uh, it's no word uh, that's so under attack at the moment as woke, is there? Woke everything, especially after the Virginia election when um, when people realized that wokeness had not helped the democrats at all in the state of virginia but i read an interesting piece in the in the new york times where else this week by charles m blow accusing the right of stealing the word and using it to create a bad odor over the woke in fact so much so that there are a number of people on the progressive left that were now not using the word uh, they, they 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 felt that it had been tarnished by the right. I wonder, team, should we... Um, is it time we perhaps dusted this off and gave it back to them? We've had our fun. I mean, or should we, or, or should we keep playing with the word? I've been worried about the use of the word work for a long time. And, you know, up until about five years ago, the, 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 the statement, woke up this morning, right, was the first line of a lot of really good blues songs, 12-bar blues songs. And now it's been devalued to the point where it just means that uh, I got a lot of likes on my what I said about global warming on my um, Twitter account yesterday. Now we've got to keep the word. It's um, the only reason the left don't like us using it. Yeah, is because it's working. 
it's actually it's harming them and they they hate it i mean i've got lefty friends if i mention just in conversation oh this stupid woke whatever they become angry because you know they say oh you don't use that's a far right term it, it means nothing it's a, it's a horrible thing to use woke is woke is a terrible thing well it's not the far right using it we had during you're talking about the u.s elections in uh, places like jersey and uh, and virginia james carville veteran clinton era democrat slammed his only uh, his own party for going too woke and he said that, that some of these people should go to woke detox yeah, yeah. he's using the word and he's using it accurately yeah, and he's, he's using it with purpose they do need to go to woke detox yeah he's when, when Car- i mean when, when carville starts warning his own his, his own people you know you know they're in trouble oh yeah and he got you know, really grief mean, over it because you know oh old man what do you know well he only won two you know big elections and uh and uh, it came from, you know, he defeated a, a one-termer. Yeah. Who, um, who only a few months out yeah. from that election, uh, George Bush the first, had quite a substantial lead on Clinton. So Carville obviously knows a little bit. But it seems to me America, like Britain and Australia, is a country divided by a common language now. That, that uh, They're speaking two different kinds of languages. I'm, I, you probably saw in the week Kamala Harris's critics accused her of speaking English with a French accent on her visit to Paris. But I think the real gripe is that the sophisticates on the left are speaking a tongue unfamiliar to the common man, the language of of wokeness. Um, here's a clip from a Microsoft in-house training video that Tim located, and, and you'll see what I mean. Hello, everyone. I'm Natalie Godilla. I'm a Caucasian woman with long blonde hair, and I go by she, her. I'm a product marketing lead here at Microsoft and co-host of the podcast Security Unlocked with this guy. Yes, that would be me. Hello, everyone. I'm Nick Fillingham. I'm a Caucasian man with glasses and a beard. I go by he, him, and I'm a security evangelist here at Microsoft. We are so excited to be with you. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I suppose I could ask what your pronouns are, guys. You might like to tell me, but the point is this is just so alien and weird to anybody outside of the bubble. Just imagine you're at a... uh some sort of social engagement with those people from Microsoft or just any woke cohort. And you've met them, been introduced, they've given you their preferred pronouns. How on earth are you meant to remember them for the rest of the evening? You know, this bloke here is a, is a she, they. This girl is a he, her. That indeterminate chap over there is a it, bing. I think the way it works is a little bit, little bit, little bit like when you go to France, and and you know, and you can't speak French very well. But if at least you try for the first five seconds, they'll they'll accept you. So I think if you just get it right once, and mm. then you know, I think it's the, the the if you show willing. Yeah, but but Simon, then you have a couple of drinks and you forget it, and you start calling him him, and you're all in you know in terrible trouble. <laughs> I mean, I don't think those people drink, by the way. They don't look they don't look like human beings. I mean, when you're talking like a Frickin' robot. It's, it's a little bit disorienting. I'd be actually scared to be in a room with those people because they seem programmed. They do. I don't think you noticed on that, that in-house Microsoft video, uh, another feature of it that sort of alarmed me was the canned laughter. So they, they made an in-house video, presumably yes. for staff. Maybe it wasn't canned laughter. Maybe that's how robots sound <laughs> when they're amused. That, but that was that, that was that, that was the giveaway uh, a component of the of the Kamala Harris thing. Was um, uh, you could tell you could tell uh, something was wrong when she didn't. She, there was none of that maniacal hysterical laughter with which she normally punctuates every sentence. 
Um, yeah, she brings her own laugh track. That would have been good if she tried to put a bit of a French accent on the laughter. If she'd gone, oh, yo, 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 yo. God, she's ridiculous. I think computers, you've touched on something there. Computers may be the answer. Can we get, can we teach computers to speak woke by loading them up with phrases like, I don't know, microaggression or hate crime or problematize? I, I think computers is teaching us is the problem because, you know, a friend of mine rang up the other day a little bit disturbed because he was writing in a Microsoft Word document. He used a particular term. I can't recall what it was, but it was something that the computer didn't like, and it threw up a suggested alternative phrase. And I think it was something, you know, in the woke realm. But here's, here's what I say to the left who want to want us to stop using woke. We'll do that as soon as they stop calling themselves progressive. Mm, very good point. <laughs> is, that a, is that a deal? Because they're not. They're certainly not. Yeah, they've stolen it. They've stolen a word that means a good thing, and it means the exact opposite now. My son, who lives in New York... He's just had an example of exactly that, quite literally, uh, a computer deciding something about his life. He does this uh, TikTok account with a mate of his, and they do these quite funny sketches. And they normally, whenever they put one of these sketches up, they always get within about six or seven hours, they get, you know, eighty to 100,000 views. They do really well. Mm. But they put this one up uh, yesterday, and, it, and, it, and it, went, it went screaming off, got up to, in about, in about an, an hour and a half, it got up to 25,000 views. And then suddenly it cut off. And they've worked out why it is. It's because in the course of one of these little sketches, they mentioned the name Dave Portnoy. Have you heard of Dave Portnoy? Yes. Yeah. Well, he, he, he does that barstool. Sports. Yeah. Sports. Yeah. Anyway, he's, currently he's, in, he's involved in a big dispute about allegations of sexual misconduct. And they reckon that the it's not a human decision. This is not people at uh, TikTok uh, monitoring what they're saying. Mm. The algorithm has picked up that they made some reference and just for the sake of safety, it's now stopping distributing their, that particular sketch to all the thousands of that, hundreds of thousands of people who want to hear it. So that's actually, that's really quite scary. Guys, we've got to move along because uh, Matt Canavan will have a lot to say about this uh, issue, I, I'm sure. But look, I don't think we can let the week go by without passing up one of the great put-downs of woke feminism I don't care less about Lisa Wilkinson leaving Breakfast TV. It's not a subject that interests me, but it it has caught my interest only because she's using it as a way to you know, signal virtue to claim that she was, you know, she just she wasn't paid as much as Stefanovic, which of course we know was rubbish. But um, Mark Latham used parliamentary privilege to uh, to make some wise comments on the issue. Mr Deputy President Wilkinson is a PhD in victimology. Even now in promoting her book sale she's playing the victim card with a social media post in the last couple of days asking, ever wonder what writing a book looks like? For me it was often like this puffy mascara stained eyes after hours of tears and many months of complete crisis of confidence absolutely convinced I wasn't up to the task. Boo-hoo for her first world problems, posting a picture from her Mossman mansion with smudged <laughs> mascara, feigning distress, while also carefully, in a classic product placement, posing with copies of the Red Pirates books, Mr Wilkinson's ghostwritten books, in front of her. So, in conclusion, Mr Deputy President, if this is feminism, then God help the women of the world. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, man, he's good. I think one of the, I think one of the worrying things about... 
about the Wickardson thing is it yet again it's another example because you know the mistakes let's put it lastly the mistakes she made in in her book about the the, the day she was that she left at her last day and and, and the things that she said even though they have now been the public's been put right um, the ABC continues to give her platforms to to defend her position on this just as it did long after Bruce Pascoe's uh, uh, you know. Uh, book had been exposed as what it was that he was still being given taken seriously as a you know it doesn't matter if on the the ABC doesn't matter if you confront them with the reality they will they will Mm. double down Mm. rather than acknowledge that they made any mistakes it's what they do my friend it's just what they do remember they um they've never given up on the likes of Tim Flannery they've never given up on any number of uh, environmental people even I think uh, there was a celebrated case a guy from the 70s who made a famous bet about Resource costs mm. going down over time. Uh, Ehrlich, yeah. yeah, and he also he's also the guy who claimed that the population was going to erupt and the mass starvation events in the nineteen seventies. None of this happened. He was the modern day Mal- Malthus, wasn't he? That's right. And then he turns up on Q and A just you know within the last few years, I think. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter yeah. at the ABC. You can be a total idiot all the time, get everything wrong, and uh, they roll out the carpet for you. Talking of woke blunders, getting it, it, Lovey's getting everything wrong. Did you catch this uh, clip from uh, Obama, former President Obama, in Glasgow this week? Since we're in the Emerald Isles here, let me quote the bard, William Shakespeare. What wound, he writes, did ever heal but by degrees? Okay, chaps, uh, two errors in that. One each. Who can spot them? Well, for a start, he's in he's in Scotland and he's talking about Ireland. And the second one, he's referring to the bard, uh, William Shakespeare, as though Shakespeare is either Irish or Scottish, depending on where Obama's mental geography is. Of course, if you're referring to the bard in Scotland, people will understand you to be talking about the poet Robert Burns. Of course. Ravi Burns. All the people who aren't allowed to go in certain pubs. Yeah, you're barred, mate. So <laughs> that's Obama, who's got staff and not a small amount of money to research matters. Mm. He's flown all the way. This is a prepared statement. Flown all the way to Glasgow, presumably aware of where that is, and managed in the space of just a handful of words to outdumb Joe Biden, which takes some considerable effort. <laughs> Do you think he came off that stage mortified? Do you think somebody pointed out to him, this isn't the Emerald Isles, President Obama, this is Scotland? Yeah, and have you ever heard of Robert Burns, who you've just maligned? In, you know, in, a, in Glasgow, imagine if a normal human had had mm. shamed the memory of Robert Burns in Glasgow. You're not getting out of that room very quickly, are you? Confused the Irish and the Scots. I mean, that's pretty serious. Oh, boy, oh, boy. But do, are they capable of shame? I don't know. Probably not. Maybe now, though, he identifies as Scott. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as the woke do, you know, O apostrophe Obama. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Obama. Seamus Obama. And then, he, and then he's gone down the road and, and enjoyed a slap-up traditional Scottish feast at McDonald's. <laughs> Maybe he's, he's going all the way, man. <laughs> Wearing a kilt on his head like an idiot. Who knows? Yeah. A McHaggis. A McHaggis. I'm a Caucasian woman with long blonde hair and I go by she, her. 
the Deputy President Wilkinson is a PhD in victimology. I'm a Caucasian man with glasses and a beard. I go by he, him. Let me quote the bar, William Shakespeare. Net zero by 2050, blah, blah, blah. I'm delighted that joining us on the podcast today is Matt Canavan, Senator Matt Canavan, no less, from Queensland. And Matt's been a senator since 2014. He was uh, Minister for Resources and Northern Australia under the Turnbull government, but he now sits proudly on the back benches. Matt, welcome <laughs> to Six O'Clock Swirl. Great to be here with you, Nick. Uh, fantastic. Uh, just about to get out of home quarantine, so... That'll be a celebration for me. You're not really getting out of quarantine, though, when you live in Queensland, are you? I mean, it's just a bigger form of exercise, yeah. <laughs> well, it's been bucketing down this week, so you haven't been able to get outside too much anyway, so I haven't missed much. But look, my, my you know, my, uh, my, my secret um, is that I, I kind of like home quarantine, you know, like, because we're, we're, I mean, look, let's face it, we're all part of this laptop class. You know, I can work here. I've got a gym set up here. I'm on an acre block. Uh, mm. You know, it's... Uh, it's not a bad existence, really, for me. But uh, uh, but uh, but why I've been against all this crap is because not everyone's as lucky as us, right? And and imagine being locked into an apartment with a few screaming kids. You know that that's that's what our politicians have done to people, and uh, I think it's inhumane. Absolutely, I think one of the worst examples of all of that was in Melbourne at the peak mm. of lockdown mania when they um, imprisoned people within housing commission flats. That that must have been horrific, and there were families in there that were just going. You know, visibly berserk. Well, you know, we've got to make sure, I think, uh, going forward here, that we never take any bleeding heart lectures about refugees again. Because these are the same people, right? It's the same people yeah. that were mm. always at us to say, you've got to take refugees. We've got mm. to, you know, not, not take them into where they live, but we've, oh, got, no, to, we've no. got to take them into the country, put them somewhere, you know, in the outer suburbs that I don't visit, uh, because I'm so compassionate and I feel for my fellow human being. Uh, yet here, when things are happening in their town, in their city, they are inhumanely, mm. lo- you know, locking people up and throwing away the key and just saying, no, sorry, because just I cannot bear any risk. Yep. Um, any potential harm to me uh, cannot be borne. Uh, so it doesn't matter how much people other people suffer. And it to me, it's, it is an unfortunate uh, prognosis on the self-centred, uh, selfish nature of modern, uh, modern, modern Western society. And we're seeing it writ large right across the world. And the laptop class, Matt. I mean, and they're not giving up the, ma- the laptop class, are they? Uh, you know, now they're reluctantly letting us out of lockdown and get back to our normal lives, sort of. But at the same time, they're insisting that uh, if you're not vaccinated, if you're not fully vaccinated, if you choose not to be vaccinated, and that's surely everybody's right, then you essentially become a discriminated per- against person, aren't you? You're a second-class citizen. I know you've been doing more than most to uh, stand up for for these uh, people who are just choosing to make their own decisions about their own bodies. Yeah, well, that's what really concerns me um, about where we're headed here, uh, Nick, is that, you know, we, we, we are being taught, we are almost being uh, um, uh, brainwashed uh, into thinking some, some element of our society is, is second class. Uh, we're creating a car system uh, within Australia uh, and just keep in mind, I think one of the unique things, the great things about Australia, is we've never had kind of a class caste sort of hierarchical system. Uh, one of the few countries in the world that don't have that, we've never had that baggage. 
you know, we've got the British heritage, but we've never had peers. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, and we've we've taken pride in the fact that you can walk into the pub and you, know, you don't have working class pubs or upper class pubs. You're all Australian. You're all treated equally. Um, maybe America's about the only other country that's a bit like that. Uh, so that's something special for us that we haven't got that. We haven't got that historical baggage, and that's changing right before our eyes here because we're saying, hey, some people who decided to make a different choice about their lives, about you know what they what they do medically to themselves. Uh, uh, it's not just we're disagreeing with the decision. We are actively going to treat them like lepers uh, within their own society and communities. Um, that's, it, to my mind, it's, it's, it's extremely uh, destructive to our own culture and our heritage. And I think it's totally ineffective too because none of this is going to work. It's just not, I mean, for what point? To me, it starts to get, because it's so disconnected. I mean, I suppose you could say if, I've often thought, look, if this was smallpox and it was killing 30% of people and we had a vaccine that could stop transmission in its tracks, yeah, okay, maybe we've got to do something or think about how we you know, uh, treat unvaccinated, vaccinated people given the, the, the risk. But that's not it. We don't have a vaccine that stops transmission. So none of these things, none of these restrictions or, 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 or impost burdens we're putting on the unvaccinated are going to do a bloody thing. It's not going to work. And so then, why are, we, why are we doing this apart from just being vindictive and and uh, and and indulging in a natural human uh, tribal behaviour that we divide each other up? Uh, that's that seems to be what what is really at play here. A couple of times now, we've we, we both we've used this this term, um, the laptop class, which is kind of like what we used to we used to talk about the latte class, but that was a bit too vague. I never was never comfortable with that because I don't think I'm part of it, but I actually quite enjoy a latte. But the lap, the, but the, the lap. Yeah, that's the problem. A lot of coal miners drink cappuccinos now, so it all went. <laughs> it all lost its impact, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and, and they, they're yeah. getting mock mockers and all this other rubbish with it. It's like, oh well, that, that doesn't count really. You know, it's just like the, the coal miner was out there going, "I hate these latte sipping liberals," <laughs> and then they turn around and you know, you know, yeah. <laughs> But the laptop class is much more definite. It's a real distinction between those yeah. who are those who are lucky enough to be able to do their work remotely and won't lose their jobs, and those who are, you know, quite literally at the coalface sometimes, who will lose their jobs because of this these rules. And it's like that's that's one division: laptop and non-laptop. Another one is vaccinated, non-vaccinated. You know, it's you know, it, it, there's increasingly this. As you say, this tribalism, this division of society in a way that seems utterly honest. Well, look, it goes more than that too, and I, I don't know how deep you always want to go down rabbit holes today. And um, you know, it's Friday afternoon, so I, yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, I think the laptop class is a great term for this, uh, but not just because of its uh, connection to employment and you know, remote work. It's also the 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 distinction here between, I suppose, cosmopolitan. Uh, and, and localism, or, or, or even you know, tribalism or community. I mean, I think that one of the big divides in our society right now is a group of people who travel the world, um, or like used to like to travel the world, um, feel themselves as global citizens, not really connected to a particular place or, or geography, compared to probably still the vast majority of other people in our community who don't really leave their local area. Um, they don't go outside their their town or. Um, or state um, necessarily even once a year, uh, and and those two existences are very different and causing great division in our community. Now that's not without being pejorative about it, but I don't know if you've seen. I just uh, came across today an article in the world uh, in Forbes, sorry, written by the World Economic Forum, 
um, where the, the I won't read all of it to you, of course, but you'll get the gist of it. From the first paragraph, it says, Welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should, should I say our city. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or clothes. It might, might seem odd to you, but it makes perfect sense in our city. Goes on. It goes on to say that... Uh, um, where is this bit at the end here? It goes on to say that my biggest concern is all the people who do not live in our city. Those we lost on the way. Those who decide that it became all too much, all this technology. Those who felt obsolete <laughs> and useless when robots and AI took over the big parts of our jobs. Those who got upset with the political system and turned against it. They live different kinds of lives outside the city. Some have formed little self-supplying communities. Others just stayed in the empty and abandoned houses in the small 19th century villages. You know, that's the mindset. That this is the World Economic Forum. It's this. Now, the thing that will really shock you, that will blow your socks off. Was it written by John Lennon? Because it sounds like an alternative version of Imagine. It, it's, it's, it's that bad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Imagine, imagine, no, imagine no possessions. It's Yoko Ono's worst nightmare. I don't, yeah, I don't reckon John Lennon would be up for this, mate. <laughs> yeah, uh, I get that. I get that. He, don't, don't forget he was singing that at the grand piano. And, um, you know, it, it's, it is, it is a, an ideological divide here. So it's not just about employment. It's not just about workplace. It is mm. about how human beings go about, you know, business yeah. and community feel. And effectively, that, that existence, because when you say you don't own a car, you don't own a house... That means you're not independent, right? That's what it is. You're reliant. You become reliant then for your travel, for your food, for for your work on, on bigger groups, whether they're big corporations or big governments. And that's where I think our side of politics needs to be a lot more and more in reinvesting back in the small is beautiful ideology. That's what we're about. You know, we don't believe in big business, in big government, in big unions that this world would have to have for these things to happen. You know, we... I mean, Scott Morrison wasn't completely wrong when he said electric cars in the weekend. It's not electric cars. I mean, who cares about electric cars? I don't care if they're electric or petrol or whatever. But it is this idea that we wouldn't have a car and we'll just take Ubers everywhere and so some big company is controlling where we can go and what we can do. The greatest thing about the car was that it unleashed individual you know, freedom. People could just go wherever they wanted um, without relying on a mass transit system uh, or having to be really rich and own a horse and carriage and all these things. Um, but there's sort of this attempt, I think, these other people are trying to go back uh, to a regime where there wasn't as much individual freedom and independence. Um, that's something we should be very worried about on my side of politics. Absolutely, Matt. Uh, just, um, just briefly on the, on the COVID vaccination nonsense again, it's a funny old thing, isn't it, that the vaccinated are protected from the virus, but they're not protected from the unvaccinated. How the hell does that work? Anyway, I, I digress, but I just want to get on, expand on... Um, on some of the philosophical aspects that you're talking about. Was there a, a lights-on moment for you? I mean, were, were you a young lefty at any point or were you always intelligent? <laughs> no, I was. I went through the period where I had no brain, um, but I did have a heart. Yeah, uh, Yeah. no, I was I was a commie at uni. I thought of mm. myself as one, at least when I started university. Yeah. That happened when I had a really good history teacher, Mr. Grulick, uh, Chris Grulick in, uh, mm -hmm. in high school. And he taught about, uh, uh, well, we didn't have subjects of history, but he taught within history, he yeah. taught he taught uh, the Cold War and the ideologies 
behind the Cold War. So I went away and read the Communist Manifesto, you know, I suppose mm-hmm. it was 15, 16 or something at this age. Didn't really make it through Dars Kapital, but I don't think anybody has ever made it through Dars Kapital. <laughs> I don't know. Um, well, Marx himself, he didn't finish that. I think Engels had to finish it for him. So the, I, I read the Communist Manifesto and thinking, yeah, yeah, this is great. We should all share and not, not own anything. Just like... <laughs> Like the World Economic Forum thinks now, you know, yeah. we shouldn't have ownership. This that's that's you know selfish. selfish. I, I had a copy of Das Capital and some bastard stole it. <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> the, the injustice of it is unbelievable. He needed a doorstop. He must have. <laughs> I need something to hold this door down. Um, because what other use would it be for it? I have read large slabs of it when I did economics. It's yeah, no, yep. it's absolute rubbish. But most of us have had that very human experience of starting off on the left and moving steadily right i guess it's what you call the um the um the, the peter hitchens trajectory although most of us don't go quite to the extremes he did whereas at one point he was not only a card carrying member a card carrying trotskyist but he's been he's got on record since uh as saying he would have been quite prepared you know at, uh, at one stage when he was in his very early 20s um that he would be quite prepared to carry out mass murder on behalf of the cause. Uh, presumably, you didn't go through that phase. No, it, did, it didn't. It didn't reach that levels at uh, the University of Queensland. Um, what was the moment of transformation for you? Like you, when you when you arrived at uni, are you the only person in history who's been cured of communism by going to university? <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because I'm a little bit of a rebel. Uh, I'm a little bit of a contrarian, <laughs> as you can yeah. see in the last couple of months as well, and. Um, and so I thought, I thought by being a commie at high school, that was really rebellious. You know, I was sticking it to the man by being communist. Yeah. Then I turn up yeah. at uni, and they're all bloody communists. You know? <laughs> it wasn't very, uh, you know, very um, contrary at all. But I actually did have it. I turned up at uni and and on market day, joining all the clubs. I'd gone up to the uh, the socialist worker tent, and I still distinctly remember their front page that day was Howard is a racist. And being a, a commie, or thought of myself as a commie, I didn't think much of little Johnny at that time. And it's in 1998. And uh, I then, I, but I didn't think he was a racist. I thought that's absurd. That's ridiculous. He's not a racist. Yeah. And I got into this big argument with the uh, the guy at the socialist worker tent, and thought these guys are idiots. Um, mm. And and didn't sign up, luckily. And um, and then uh, you know, and then I look, I, I I didn't immediately get cured of it, but. Uh, it's just the usual process, mate, as you read more and George Orwell was influential on me as a, and mm-hmm. you, you learn about the world more, you think this stuff is absurd. It's not going to work. Uh, yeah. So that was that. I became a bit of a libertarian, but then I had kids and, um, you know, then you do believe in rules once you have kids. My um, my transformative moment... Um, Were you a lefty? Oh, yeah. Yeah, terrible lefty. Uh. Um, my transformative moment was because uh, I grew up in the western suburbs of Melbourne. I love cars and I'd meet these people and... None of them like cars. They they didn't like anything about private transport. They uh, they. Loved... And you weren't a fan of soy milk. No, I liked <laughs> flavour and vehicles, and um, and I'd spent. I went to school on trains every day, trains and buses. I hated <clears throat> public transport. <clears throat> it's you know, it's a public toilet with wheels, and um, that was the first sort of clue that they wanted to take away their things I liked. And, uh, and they've continued doing so throughout my so entire life. So this was life. before climate change too. What was the justification to take away cars back then? Uh, that, they pres- were, that they were a, a private indulgence, I guess. or that Yeah, yeah. Well, that they, they've always been just polluters. They've always been bad. Um, I suppose that's true. Yeah, yeah. so they've just, just always been wicked. Now, Queensland's a funny old place, Matt. 
you've got the most intense concentration, obviously not in the north, but in the cities further south, of the Extinction Rebellion crew and other kind of climate activists. Well, I don't know if they're Queenslanders, though, are they? Well, there's quite I a mean, few I, of them, I, quite I, a little cluster. I, I just did notice, though, that the greatest thing about the border closures uh, was a distinct reduction in interference in coal mining projects that happened at the time. Yep. So so the Adani project got built basically mostly through 2020. <laughs> and, and, and it was like blessing from God that Nimbin got separated from uh, Carmichael uh, during that construction process. They had no interruptions basically thanks to COVID and they got cracking. So there was a a, uh, case that was up in Bowen um, just before COVID. Bowen's uh, sort of uh, in between Townsville and Mackay. And uh, um, it's also where uh, Dani's port is. That's where they'll export the coal from. Uh, uh, and there was a court, a case in the magistrate's court. There were ten of these extinction rebellion types people. I think they're sort of a coal action group. Uh, they um, they uh, they had they, they had to list in the court all their where they're from, and only like two of them I think were Queenslanders, yep. and they were from Brisbane and that, uh, and the rest were from Sydney and Melbourne and stuff. Yep. So, you know, I, I just I think that's I, I suppose we get the activity because that's where the coal industry is. Yep. So they come. They come to the front line, so to speak, and they come from all around the country to do that. Um, but mate, these guys, are, and and I'm I'm still not convinced a lot of this is organic. Uh, this there's people funding this. I mean, I I had a bloke, uh, a grazier up here. He was down in um, Brisbane for you know, holidays once. And he's in the Queen Street Mall, and he gets accosted by a guy saying, "Hey, you know, sign this against Adani. Sign mm. this stop Adani thing, right?" And uh, he 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 start, He leads him along. Okay, yeah. What do you reckon? Yeah, Danny. What are the, what are you, he's going, Yeah, Danny's gonna. They're gonna mine the reef. They're gonna mine all the coral and all this stuff. Oh, he let him go for a while. Let him go for a while. And then this crazy says, "Mate, I'm actually the next door neighbour of the project. Everything you're saying is total bullshit." Like, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> and um, and it turns out as they got they start up conversation. Turns out this this guy with the petition. He was a backpacker getting paid uh, fifteen bucks an hour to stand there and ah, do this. Fascinating. Right? And and he said, "Oh yeah, I don't really care about it, mate. I was just you know doing it for a bit of money." And he and he tried to hit the the crazy up for a job. <laughs> to be got any work up there. You know? <laughs> I heard I heard a, I heard a podcast, a British podcast, not very long ago, uh, where they'd got Peter, uh, Peter Ridd on as a guest. I think it was James um, right. Dellingpole or something. And he was talking to Peter Ridd, and I didn't realise until, first of all, I didn't realise until they got into the conversation that Peter Ridd's expertise was in, was that you know he was as much concerned yeah, yeah. about um, the, uh, uh, the the accusation that farmers had been polluting the, the reef as much as as much as you know uh, global warming and so on, and it occurred to me that uh, I didn't re- that that uh, first of all he he made the point that he. Reed, Reed himself is a Northern Queenslander. He made it very clear. He said almost everything that goes wrong in Queensland is because of people come who come from Sydney and Melbourne. <laughs> now that's very fair. <laughs> but but I, but I, but I, but I, but I, but I, I wondered whether, um, uh, in the light of what happened to Peter Reed recently in the High Court, was presumably there was a huge. I didn't realise there was a huge support for him amongst the farming. Oh, absolutely, there. Simon. I, I mean. Uh... Peter's a Peter's a bit of a rock star uh, up here, so he has or has done series of town halls uh, in the past few years, and and you'll regularly get 100, 200 people turn up to hear Peter, uh, which 
yeah, you don't get with climate scientists running through the place. They don't get those sort of crowds. And, and you know, because he speaks common sense. He, and, and you're right to say, like, Peter's an environmentalist. Uh, he, he, as I would say, all our farmers are too. They're on the land. They care about the environment. Peter himself went into marine biology um, and that discipline because he cared about the environment. But he does care about science and uh, he, he's a, a man of uh, unique courage in the current environment because when he could see the science being distorted as it has come out clearly that it has been he stood up against it as far as as far as they were concerned he was the worst kind of environmentalist because he took a good careful look at what was there what had been said realized there was a discrepancy and then said you know what i'm that rare thing i'm an environmentalist who's actually very happy with the status quo yeah and they could they couldn't stand that yeah and and and, and yeah, you know, like, like and, and that's the position of all of us up here. It's our local environment. I mean, where I'm sitting now, I, I'm a five-minute drive from the, the Great Barrier Reef marine catchment area. Um, you know, we, we, we've got a, a wonderful island there, Great Keppel, just off the coast. We'd love to see it get a little bit more investment. It's a shadow of what it used to be from a tourism perspective, mm. but it's a beautiful part of the world. We're not going to do any damage to it. Um, but when we see these, this crap, like... So the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald a few years ago... Had a, um, had a had a had a picture, a sort of not satellite, but a but a but a but a but a satellite like a yeah. bird's eye picture of the a beach near near Bowen when it was talking about near Adani's port, and I think the headline was something like um, blackout or black wash or something, and there was there was this black stuff that was washed up along the beach, and the whole article was about how this was this was terrible that coal had washed up on the beach. It was just after Cyclone Debbie, I think. Yeah. And one of the cyclones, and they reckon that coal had been gotten out of the Adani port, <laughs> gone out to sea, and then washed back up <laughs> onto the beach. And uh, except that uh, it wasn't coal; it was uh, magnetite, which is a re- naturally occurring substance which regularly washes up on the beaches mm. up here. Uh, and someone went down. Actually, a Labor MP, good, well, a former Labor MP, went down there. He's a member of the CFMEU, and did a story with his strong going, "It's not bloody coal." Yeah. And these idiots from Sydney, just the, the, that's what angers people the most. We've got people who know nothing about our industry, nothing about our region, do not live here, barely come up and visit here, right? Yeah. You're describing um, journalists, and, Matt, and yeah. in general. I'll just give you <laughs> and, a couple and, more. And they, but they want, they want to... Yeah, well, it is journalists because at least other people... I don't care if you don't want to come here or don't yeah. want to understand life, but I don't expect people to do that. They've yeah. got their own busy lives to do. But the difference with journalists is um and greens that MPs, they know nothing I, at I, I all repeat myself yeah they they well they then they, it's not that they know nothing they then want they want to tell everybody that they do know everything yeah and they want to plan your life and your community shut down things because they think they know everything yeah but they they all know almost nothing because they're not here they don't understand there's a, there's a great example of it a few years ago matt during the 2016 election campaign in the us um mike pence Trump's VP was doing a live cross from a factory because he was all about trade and engineering. And behind him, there was a computerised milling machine, you know, grinding away on a block of uh, aluminium. These are very common devices. They used to be incredibly rare and expensive, and you could only buy them if you... But now you can get them for your garage, you know. Anyway, journalists watching this live coverage were bewildered by this device. What the, What on earth is happening behind Mike Pence? This is because the journalist class hasn't been inside a factory for 30 years. These are the most common milling devices. They, 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 literally, you can go down the road and probably buy one at Bunnings these days. 
And uh, they don't recognise those. They don't recognise things like rubber bullets. They don't know what the hell coal is. They've never seen coal, so when black stuff appears and it's bad, well, put two and two together. That must be, yep, yep. That must be it. That's exactly right. And uh, I think we're seeing that now with all of the um, supply chain disruptions and what have you. Uh, people don't seem to understand that you to get your... Uh, your 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 new headphones from Amazon. Uh, it needs to go into a box. It needs to be put into a truck. It needs to go on the water and then come across. Uh, they don't. And, and then so when there's 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 these backups and congestion, they just don't get it. So I mean, you've got the Democrats out there. You said the president this week and, and others in the Democratic Party saying, "Oh, this is all because uh, of COVID shutdowns. This is all because of COVID." It's got nothing to do with that, as anybody who's looked at the supply chain understands. It's got to do with lack of spaces for boxes at the Los Angeles port. It's got a bit to do with the truck driver shortages and shortage of labour more generally. It's got to do with increased demand for these types of goods because we're locking everybody up. They can't spend money on restaurants and stuff, so they're spending money on, on new headphones. Um, and and um, there's, there's this little interpretation. You saw, I was laughing with you, I think, Tim, this week, that uh, then you've got the transport secretary in the US seemingly saying his biggest priority is the racism inherent in, in roads and bridges. <laughs> and this is the bloke trying to fix the supply chain crisis. Matt, too, these people speak a different language, don't they, these woke uh, woke people? Uh, and, and you must encounter a lot more of them here when you come down to Canberra and you anywhere south of the border. When you go back to Queensland, I often wonder, you know, you go back from, say, two, two sitting weeks in Canberra. How long does it take you to readjust to normal life? Well, look, I, I, I suppose I, 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 it's more the other way. It's when I go down there, then I, I think I don't, I don't understand where I am or what's going on. Um, when I, when I go, I, I hope to think I don't lose. You know, I'm not down in camera that long that you lose, you lose the connection. But I do think that's one of the problems with these lockdowns and the quarantine. Like for the prime minister, he hasn't been out and about. You know, hasn't been able to go around and and meet yeah. and talk to people. Mm. Um, but he would be still talking to people in in his bureaucracy in Canberra. Uh oh, so that's what happened to him. <laughs> I don't know, mate. <laughs> I don't know, but that that you know, I think that is a real problem that that politicians aren't getting out there and doing the town halls and that, and understanding well, you know, actually what people are really talking about is a bit is something a bit different than what we're obsessed by uh, in Canberra, and that the climate change stuff is just you just you just rarely ever get it mentioned. I mean, when um, we had the big bushfires go through a few years ago and we had some fires near where I am just before the bigger ones that happened down in New South Wales, our fires were nowhere near as, as uh, destructive. Mm-hmm. But they were bad for people affected. And and I spent a week or two after that travelling around the area going to see farmers and talking to them about the issues. Not a single person mentioned climate change. Yeah. Not a single person. Um, but they were all complaining to me about local governments not clearing road verges as like they used to, uh, the state government stopping them from clearing their own land and putting in fire breaks, etc., and showing me like I've been able to put this fire break in because this there's the bureaucracy involved in fighting the fire and even just trying to do sh- stuff at the time. Yeah, that was the topic of conversation. Yeah, um, but uh, it's, everything it's... dominated the media was. Yeah, the planet's blowing up, and it's because of our coal industry that, that these fires have been caused. No one when, on the um, at, at the that. peak of the um, uh, the drought in New South Wales, when we had you know fish dying in Menindee and all this sort of stuff, and it was all climate, climate, climate. I drove the length of the Darling mm. River with two other reporters. 
Yeah, I remember and that. We, and we made a pact beforehand. We're not going to raise the subject of climate change. If it comes up, we'll cover it. We'll, we'll walk away from that person as soon as possible. <laughs> oh, yeah. Depend, depend, yeah. Well, you know, we'll, we'll, leave, we'll leave that wing of the mental asylum. But we, we, but we spoke to literally dozens, many dozens of people. Yeah. Um, who live along what was then a dry riverbed. It isn't now, thank God. No one, no one. One person very early on mentioned it. And then as soon as our video camera stopped rolling, he goes, oh, I had to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think he was running for council or something. So he had to, had had to, to say that. The, had to throw in the pity. And that's why you get these disconnects in the polling too, right? That's yeah. what happens. People yeah. are telling pollsters stuff. I'm sure they're telling people, that's a yeah, yeah, yeah I, I hate Trump. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I believe in climate change. Yeah, yeah, I support net zero. Yeah, because most polling is still human to human, and even if it's even if it's a robocall, yeah. you, these days people think, oh, all that stuff's getting recorded somewhere. Track oh, you could do a poll tomorrow that said, you know, uh, is is Namibian um, Namibian children are starving? Is this bad? Everyone goes, oh, it's terrible, bad. And yeah, because people they run a campaign on, their record on it. With it. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. And 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 so. Uh, I, th- I think we're be really careful. I think in terms of you mentioned the serious question. Okay, what's what's happened to the prime minister? Yeah, I still think the biggest the biggest poison in politics right now is the tendency to make decisions based on 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 focus groups or polling. Yeah. So the, the, you know we'll poll something about like net zero, and and because uh, people go oh yeah because I hear that and think I meant to say yes to that right yes I mean, absolutely I, you know yeah. that's that's what is expected of me. Yeah. And what does it cost you to say yes? Like, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah, all right, I support that. Just easy, you know. And then when you make the decision on the base of that, you then yeah. get, well, hang on, why are people all angry with me that petrol prices are up and yeah. <laughs> you know, that their jobs are at risk? There are so many great examples. It's just before you begin, Simon, um, more than a decade and a half ago, I think Channel 10 did a huge climate change special. Sandra Sully you know, flew overseas to interview Al Gore and it was mega promoted. And it raided through the floor. And there was an actual actual <laughs> comment from one of the executives who said, we don't get it because all the polls that we've taken said that people were fascinated by this subject. <laughs> Yet again and again it happens. I was just going to correct you. I was just going to correct you on that one thing, Matt, if you don't mind. You said, you know, how, how bad it was that so, much poli- so many policy decisions are now taken on the basis. There's nothing worse than taken on the basis of focus groups. I think in, in the last year or so, we realised there is something worse, which is uh, policy decisions being based on the, <laughs> on the opinion of experts. Yeah, yeah, that's... Well, what's, what's the old saying that um, an expert is someone who's made every known mistake in a very narrow field? Um, uh, yeah, and that's... that's yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. That is probably worse. Um, and I, I, um, I do think that... Um, that people, hopefully, that I mean, look, I don't know, I don't really know yet, but I certainly think that that the experience of the lockdowns, uh, um, now the mandates as well, I think that'll be exposed as complete rubbish once COVID is endemic, regardless of vaccination rates or mandates and what have you. That there will be a a, a reckoning here that that experts uh, won't be trusted as much in the future. I mean, when you've got Wally Dali, he was out there a couple of months ago making this point, that we actually elect politicians to make decisions, sure, based on expert advice, and I've got nothing against that, that the experts should come in and, okay, you know, the health guy says this, the economist says this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but 
the the core problem here is that these the, the wisdom of the quote I mentioned before is that the experts by definition are narrowly focused. They're not I'm not saying they're bad people or, or have bad intentions, but a health expert, an epidemiologist, is focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is reducing the, the, the potency or spread of a virus. That's their job. Uh, but in the real world, there's a whole lot of other things that are, can be equally important or, or more important from, at different times. And so you shouldn't just listen to the narrowly focused, obsessed uh, epidemiologist. Uh, unfortunately, that's what we've done for most of the pandemic. And unfor- unfortunately, it's been a complete lack of leadership by... Uh, political leaders who should be and willing and it, to and it, to make their own decisions and, and stand by them. And it's been compounded. It's been, been compounded by the fact that it's not just like one or two countries have done it. Every bloody every bloody one. Yeah. Of them although I, 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 well, it's going to raise Sweden. In, Sweden. In, 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 I, I, although I suppose the thing to make about this point, the interesting thing to make here is that there's something else has happened because in fact, in fact, Sweden actually did follow its experts and and. Pre the pandemic, when you go back and read the expert advice that was written for the plan, you know, if, if we have an outbreak, what do epidemiologists say we should do? Almost to a man that I've seen is the pre-pandemic plans were, oh, yeah, don't lock down. That's only in very exceptional circumstances because of all these other impacts that we've seen and been evident. Yet when it happened, um, there was a, I don't know, I think there, there was something else there than just expert advice. It was the mob. It was... The media, um, the media got fixated on this stuff. So people, there's enormous pressure to do this. I mean, don't forget Norman Swan. People, very few people realize this because I started following it very closely in February or so, uh, in 2020, and 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 I was an early uh, thinking that this could be really bad, and, and I still think it's 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 a bad virus, um, but not as bad as I feared, and and um, uh, and and Norman Swan, the ABC guy. He was saying very early on, oh, no, no, we shouldn't lock down. You know, we, 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 that's not the right response. Uh, he was talking about herd immunity and spread. And then something happened like a week or two after that, he, bang, became Mr. Lockdown. Uh, and so I still don't, I don't really understand what happened to the epidemiologists here and why they ignored their own pre-pandemic advice. Um, I think, um, you know, a lot of things have changed in this in this COVID uh, period, and I, I think I think they're going to be permanent changes. It feels to me like a sort of cultural shifting of the tectonic plates. We're seeing, you know, things are not going to be the same, and and clearly, uh, you know, the the divide between the laptop class, as we like to call them now, and the rest is widening. Uh, they are two groups of Australians who are don't understand one another. Now, this is going to be a an issue isn't it come the election and and you as you know you've always been in a critical position up there in Queensland in in really informing the Prime Minister and others in Canberra about the mood up there uh, and yet that's going to be a problem this time because the Prime Minister not been able to travel and so forth what are your do you feel that you are going to be able to explain to people in Canberra what the mood is up in in Queensland indeed do you, do you know what the mood is and and how can a liberal government uh, uh, react to that or how should it be reacting to that well there's two parts to that question I'll ask the, I'll answer the thing about is this are we are we uh, here for are we shifting to a 
uh, New World Order, if you like. I know you didn't use those words, but <clears throat> um, uh, uh, for the long term, I don't quite agree with that. I'll answer that first, then come back to the politics. I don't quite agree with that because, I mean, unless democracy gets suspended, uh, the unfortunate thing that I don't think the laptop class realise is that they're outnumbered. There's not that many of them. Um, and they're outnumbered by the shopping clerks, the truck drivers, the tradesmen and women. Um, and I'd include the nurses and all these um, groups in that bucket. They're not laptop class. And, you know, the laptop class probably lucky to be 10 to 20% of the electorate. So, so you know, if they push this too hard, there'll be a reaction. There'll be a, there'll be a backlash. And I can think you can already see that building in the US. We saw it in Melbourne. Um, yeah, we've seen it um, in the streets of Melbourne. Um, I, you know, we saw that the truck driver got elected there in, in New Jersey with 100, mm-hmm. spending 153 bucks on his campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the the the, the 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 conditions is is ripe for a backlash uh, against the laptop class. Now that, I mean, obviously, I'd <laughs> I'd get some schadenfreude out of that, but I think there's a lot of risk in this too because it will it is dividing our society. So the yeah. backlash might be pretty pretty brutal. Um, uh, on the election though, that's a different question because we're still sort of in COVID and, uh, we're certainly in, in Queensland, um, still there's a wariness about it cause we haven't had it basically or mostly. So we're still not down much path down this path of living with the virus. I'm really concerned about the election that it will become one about health. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if the political commentators are really picking that up yet. There's a lot of stuff about Glasgow and climate change right now and talk about us shifting it to the economy. But when you talk to people and certainly in, our, in the focus groups, we'll go back to that, the top of mind issue for people's health and COVID, that's what it remains. Um, someone told me a really interesting point the other day that um, uh, do you know when the Federal Department of Health was created, when it was formed? After, it was after the uh, the Spanish That's flu, right. wasn't it? In the That's right. early twenties, it, so, inclu- it was set up in, it, by some money from the Rockefeller Foundation. Is that right? It was used to set it up, but it was set up, I think, with a specific purpose of managing pandemics, right? Well, I don't know the detail, but that sounds right. But it was certainly the timing was apparently there was a, mm. a strong demand to to for the federal government to do more because of the various inadequacies in the state government responses. Um, of the Spanish flu. And I just see, see the same thing sort of building here, obviously different because we already are, uh, have a significant department. But, um, but the, the, the pressures here is that our hospital system is not up to scratch and something has to be done. And they'll look to the federal government to do that. I mean, it's a, it is extremely frustrating, of course, to see the likes of Mark McGowan and Anastasia Palaszczuk complaining about the dilapidated state of their hospitals that they manage and are responsible for and we're 18 months into this and they've seemingly done nothing to fix the inadequacies they're apparently pointing to. But the political, hardcore political reality is then it will come, their inadequacies, their deficiencies uh, in March or May next year will land at the door of the, the, the both parties who want to become the federal government and the electoral say, so what are you going to do about it? And the difficulty for us is that if the election is focused on health, um, that typically we'll see swinging voters shift to the Labor side more than ours. You saw that. So I'm really worried about a 2016 redux, right? This is that we're effectively Mm. looking at at the coalition side adopting an innovation, jobs and growth 2.0 type stuff like technology and taxes. What does that mean? Like that's, you know, it's all, it doesn't have a lot of bite um, or traction. 
Um, it won't energise people. A big vacuum will be created. And in 2016, um, Bill Shorten was able to use that vacuum to put in the most ridiculous care campaign you've ever seen in your life, that we would privatise Medicare. I mean, how do you privatise something that costs $19 billion a year? Mm. Who's going to buy that? Um, but it worked. It worked. Mm. Uh, and the conditions are there ripe for the Labor Party to do the same. But when things are shifting around, Matt, um, if you're creative and thoughtful about it, it it needn't shift in one direction. And we saw that in the US with the recent elections there. Education is now a conservative win. You know, yeah, and when, and you, I, when, I, you, when you can move education into the into the conservative column, yeah, there's no reason that health can't be shifted there either. Yeah, possibly, but you you know you go back to the Howard saying you can't fatten the pig on market day either. Yeah. So what mm. what I, I'm yet to see the the scaffolding of what you know a, a health take a, a conservative take over the health debate would be. You know the issue the issues as presented in our debate are very superficial at the moment. It's basically they need more money. Yeah, That's what they want yeah, for the health yeah. system. And there hasn't been a lot of thinking, and, and Nick might want to comment a little bit, but I don't see a lot of thinking from the conservative side of politics in Australia or anywhere in the Western world, really, of an alternative model for for universal health care. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. The education thing's interesting, but I and I do think I mean I think Alan Tudge is doing a great job on on the national curriculum, and you know we do there are there is a lot of concern out there about parents and from parents about what yep. the kids are being taught. That's something we should make part of the campaign, but I don't think you can translate the US experience directly to Australia primarily oh, yeah. primarily because of this. We've got private schools, yep. and mm. and so that the 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 curriculum over there is much much more um, impactful because. You, know, you don't really get a choice of school, yeah. um, and so it becomes extremely emotional. Whereas here, look, I, I wish my kids' Catholic schools were probably less, you know, less sort of soft on some of the environmental issues and stuff like that. But they're not getting taught radical safe schools type stuff. That's not mm. happening. So there's a limit, I think, to how far that issue will will, will gain traction compared to the Matt. Uh, one final question: we, We're not primarily a political podcast. We uh, we consider ourselves above that uh, tacky business, <laughs> by and large. But uh, uh, here, here's a politi- very political question for you, uh, and it, it's a plea, really, a plea from all of us, I guess. Uh, when are you going to shift to the lower house so that you can become a future deputy prime minister? Uh, mate, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I've got enough friends in Canberra for that. But um, uh, look, I. I uh, it was something I thought about this time. Um, there were some opportunities that would have made would have meant I'd have to move from where I am, and ultimately, you know, I got kids myself, and they're doing well at school, so I didn't want to do that. Uh, uh, didn't want to make them shift. So yeah, look, it just look. I don't know. It, it, I'm, I'm not ruling it out, um, but I'm not particularly uh, desperate for it either. I. I I feel I'm very lucky and honoured to be in the position I'm in. I never thought I'd be in frontline politics. It wasn't really in my life plans as a kid have grown up in Logan and had lived his adult life in Canberra. That, that you know, future um, career as a conservative politician is not one you can really put much weight in when you're living in Canberra. You've got more, more chance of playing cricket for Australia, basically. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't think about it much. And then this sort of all just fell into my lap. So I'm pretty honoured with that. I'll do the best I can for as long as I'm allowed to. Um, and then, Matt, you know, just one final, future, final, one final, final, final question. This is actually more of an opportunity for a free ad. In um, in Sydney, I've got a lot of friends, uh, conservatives, 
who were upset with me uh, when I went to Queensland the last time I was allowed to go to Queensland for a holiday because they are all boycotting it because of Palaszczuk and border closures and so on. I had to point out to them that I went to North Queensland. It's a very distinct and different <laughs> place. So just, just briefly, uh, tell us why people should not take Palaszczuk as a, as a reason to not visit Queensland well, and that there are other your, areas. You've got to put yourself in Palaszczuk's shoes too. I mean, don't take it personally, Tim. I think... Really, what she's been doing with the borders is she wants to keep Bob Brown out. She doesn't want him back. Uh, it was a pretty uh, traumatic experience for her and the Queensland Labor Party when he last visited. So you can understand that. You can understand that. Um, but, yeah, look, I think uh, North Queensland is a special place in this country. Uh, yeah. I do want to see a, a new state of North Queensland one time, if only, if only to create a safe space for conservatives to retreat to uh, when the revolution is televised. So... Um, uh, it's a very different place. I mean, look, one thing, uh, you just look at the culture of different parts of our country. I think, isn't the ACT, I saw, actually saw the ACT, I saw some age groups of the ACT population had 105% vaccination rate. I, mean, I, I don't know exactly how that works, but maybe that was the boosters or people just going back for, you know, for more. But yeah, they're, they're at 99 or whatever percent. Um, and, and we, you know, if, you know, the common line is, oh, how great is that? Up here in North Queensland, mate, you know, the, we're, we're not doing that well uh, on a vaccination rate basis. But I'm not that negative about that, to be honest, because, you know, what, what that shows me is that, you know, let's face it, Canberra people are bloody sheep. They are. They just do as they're told. You know, for all the left-wing crap about their give it to the man and their, you know... Um, I saw a great cartoon today where it was uh, one... It, was a, it had 19, 1971, you know, lefty, and he was in a combi van with flowers all over it, and it was, you know, CIA with a cross through it, um, down with capitalism, etc. And then he's looking over, and then the lefty in 2021's in a big Range Rover, uh, you know, um, <laughs> saying no to fossil fuels, and, you know, the CDC, oh, we love the CDC... <laughs> <laughs> and and where so where is that where is that skepticism and anti-authoritarianism and and so I actually think that North Queensland is the hope of the side here because it is skeptical of authority and and there is a there is a there is a good there's some good th good things about that because you know, people in authority get things wrong they get it wrong all the yep. time and if so if we're all sheep everybody goes down whereas there is a space there should be space in any society for heterodox thinking. And there's a lot of heterodox thinking up here in North Queensland, a lot of characters. Uh, and uh, I love that about the place. Uh, yeah. And hopefully it's not crushed alongside of many other things that's being, that are being crushed in our society. Well, Matt, uh, thank you. Thank you very much for joining us on the 6 o'clock swill. Uh, we could talk for hours. We but uh... Well, we have. Yeah, I think we're making the 9 o'clock swill now. It'll get more interesting as we go along. I'm, I'm running out of recording tape here. I've got to put another cassette in. So look... I told you to use a D90. <laughs> <laughs> there's a joke for people of a certain age Matt uh, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we hope to welcome you again back to uh, anytime guys thanks very much good on you Matt Canavan, and thank goodness he's staying in politics. Uh, Tim, um, talking of the Queensland border being shut, there was a rather novel attempt to get across the border in the week, wasn't there? <laughs> Tell me about it. We've all learned something very important this week. Well, that's if you are a, um, 
an alleged multimillionaire drug lord. If you are such a person and you're hiding inside a Mercedes that is in turn inside a shipping container that is on the back of a truck and you're in this situation in a bid to escape New South Wales, get into Queensland and then head to points beyond. The thing you really don't want to do is if you hear a policeman knocking on the container in which you are, <laughs> in which you're concealed, and you get the old... You don't knock back. You don't respond. Because that's what undid dear old Mustafa Balak. I think I think I've got the pronunciation deliberately wrong there. Um, he'd uh, he'd he'd skipped out on four million dollars bail sixteen days earlier. Uh, he was equipped with an ankle bracelet, a court ordered ankle bracelet, electronic, which uh, he removed obviously very easily. Didn't help him though, because he heard the knock, assumed it was his uh, his comrades, you know, his uh, his alleged travel conspirators, and he responded. <laughs> at which point the gig was up. He was busted. Was this is the guy also as a restaurateur, yeah? Uh, I think he had a financial interest in a in a place that sell sold of food. Restaurants. Yeah. So so it was, so he'd get some sort of sort of. I wouldn't put him at the gourmand sort of, level of. Uh, well, but he gets to maybe get some consolation that he was actually the, the conditions you described. He was what does he say? He was inside a Mercedes, inside a uh, shipping container, uh, in, 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 which, which itself was inside a no, truck. Was it? No, it was on on a truck. So, so then at least, at least that's the sort of it's the automotive equivalent of a Tadakan, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, he's he's gone a yeah. triple kind of layer yeah, uh, thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and he was the um, he was the chicken in that arrangement. I believe. Is the chicken the smallest bird in that in that combination? I think the chicken goes in the I duck. Think it and is. goes inside I the think turkey. It is. Yeah, yeah. You could add yeah. a quail. You know, you could really you could go. Uh, they probably people probably have. I'm sure they have. I think the French do like about five or six. I think swans are involved. Yeah, and also they do it while the birds are alive, just for the fun of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> First catch your pelican, you know, and then you work your way down the ornithological sort of size scale. By the way, you know, in, 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 in the first famous British cookery book, Mrs. Beaton's Cookbook, which was published in about, um, in about you know, 1750, mm. um, the uh, the recipe for jugged hare, jugged hare. Mm. The first the first line of it is first catch your hare. Yes. And and but people people don't know what that means. Catch means skin. Is that right? Oh really? Well, you learn something every day. Oh, Prince Harry was um, he's always in the news for something. Um, he was talking about misinformation. Look, I think we'd all agree misinformation is a problem. But he went on to say that he thought misinformation. The misinformation was a humanitarian disaster. How would you rank the famine of reliable information against other great starvations of our lifetimes, like the 1998 to 2004 <laughs> famine in the Republic of Congo, which killed 2.7 million people, or the North Korean famine of 1994 to 98, which killed 3.5 million people? The are you certain of those numbers, Nick, or is this just more of your horrible right-wing misinformation that you're spreading? <laughs> it's Wikipedia, so it can't be wrong. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Misinformation is a global humanitarian crisis. Have words got any about, meaning is, left at all? Is he talking about perhaps a beauty, a beauty queen? Ah, misinformation. 
Yeah, maybe she's a real bitch. She maybe no, no, yeah, she's the 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 most beautiful girl at Harvard or something, you know. Yeah, and she's like mean. <laughs> she's a mean girl. Mm. I think it's I think it's right up I think it's right up there with the potato famine. Th- that was the one that, that wiped out Scotland, right? That's, just, yes, yeah, the Emerald Isle. Just just fact checking that for the President Obama for you. Yeah, look, I I don't want to give scope to Simon Collins to voice his Republican <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> But anyway, you've got some thoughts on the Queen. Well, it's no, they're not really my thoughts. They're not really my thoughts. I don't, I don't know whether you guys saw it, but there was a really amazing article in a, a recent edition of The Spectator Australia by John Reddick, who, as you may know, is a leading figure in the, in the movement Australians for a Constitutional Monarchy. And I say amazing because the article kicks off straight away by saying maybe the House of Windsor has passed its use-by date. And, um, you know, I, I, I thought he was going to jump into another stupid uh, statement, as you've just quoted one from Prince Harry uh, or, or, or his evil scheming missus or, or, or more unsavoury allegations about Prince Andrew and his dodgy connections. But no, Ruddock is not one of the conservatives who he says have a mystical reverence for monarchy. He's much more sensible. He's the cooler kind of conservative who supports the crown purely for, quote, functional purposes. Mm. And the reason he's disillusioned, and I assume that if he's doing this, he must speak for quite a few. The reason he's disillusioned is actually because of what suddenly the Queen's done. What, given up drinking? Well, no, her, her very, uh, this is a completely, you know, unprecedented thing really for the Queen. is her very public endorsement or support for a hot political issue, which is essentially her endorsement of COP26 and and thereby implicitly the goals of that, which the realisation of which goals will be disastrous for a coal you know, dependent economy like Australia, not to mention the misery and de- deprivation it'll inflict on the lives of a lot, millions of her poorest subjects. So Ruddick says, if we're going to get a new head of state, he offers a couple of alternative suggestions. One of them, it's quite silly, but it, but, but you can, can see why he went there, is, is that we simply transfer our national allegiance to the less scandal-prone but geopolitically irrelevant Danish royal family on the, I suppose, reasonable grounds that at least one of us is already married to one of them. Yeah. You know, and and, and another one is a kind of a ridiculously emasculated Republican model that would involve us shredding our own constitution and would end up with presidents who, um, who, who are so... It's such a, it's such a, a an approximation. There, they'd be more, they'd be presidents who are more Claytons than Clintons. And then the the last option, which I don't think he really believes in, is he says we simply we simply persist with the current arrangement uh, on the understanding that Her Majesty and her next two successors will never say anything bad about coal again. But of course, even if she even if she would do that, mm. uh, we know Charles couldn't keep his mouth shut on any issue for which he's been in the past. A, a brilliantly useful idiot yeah. for almost every environmental cause. I want to tell Mr. There's a fourth option that's entirely Australian, yet has all the qualities, the leadership and figure, figurehead qualities we admire in the Queen up until last week in, in Glasgow. The secret of the Queen's enduring popularity is actually that she is the opposite of a people person. In certain critical respects, she's not very human at all. She's a monolith of imperviousness to opinion and political neutrality. Her sang froid is positively superhuman. She is a rock, which begs two questions. 
does Australia's next head of state have to be a human being? Mm-hmm. And why can't it be an actual rock? I'd go for that. As it happens, as it happens, we have a bloody great big one right in the middle of the country, so WA couldn't complain. Everybody loves it. Everyone respects it. Everyone literally looks up to it. I've climbed it. Queen Uluru the first. That's what you're proposing. We should we should skip Charles. We should skip William. Just goes as King yeah. Queen Uluru the first. It's been there for fifty five million years or whatever. It's just longer than the Windsors. Longer than longer than Charles has been waiting, mm. um, and uh, maybe this is its time. The only thing it can't do. The only thing it can't actively do. The only thing that government general. Governor General actively does is every twenty-five years dismisses a prime minister, but we don't really want to go through all that again, anyway, do we? Yeah, but can you can you put it in an open-top car and can it then wave? No, but we, we, I, 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 I don't know that you could stick a big bendy hand on it, and the wind could just you know, <laughs> blow it to and to and fro. But it's not. It's actually having a huge piece of rock as a, 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 as, a as a as an authority figure. I think that's a great idea. It worked for Stonehenge, and it worked for the. It works now for the Kaaba in in Mecca. Pyramids, got your pyramids. Worked for the Catholic Church. Absolutely, absolutely. Upon this rock. Absolutely, Peter. My pro monarchy argument has always been that whatever power is held by the monarchy over Australia is power that's um, not available to any Australian politician. Yes. So it's 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 always been, and I've always said it doesn't matter to me if it's. The Queen, a goldfish, a goldfish bowl. Any anything that withholds power that would otherwise be available to Australian politicians and therefore make us uh, more controlled. So a rock, there you go, ticks every I box reckon, for me. Also, you know, it's a it's a very nice I rock. Think it's- the the glamour of it would go to the rock's head, and it would just become full of hubris. A rock star. Yeah, it'd be a rock star. It'd you be know. a rock star. It used yeah. It it used to be about. It used to be about, you know, the music, man, you know, and then, you, you know, the rock starts getting into bad habits and, you know, you start finding just, you know, a few empty bottles here and there during the daytime and, you know, prescription drugs. I think it could catch on. I think it's got the same kind of populist appeal as my uh, mask abaters organisation had. I think, I think it, no, no, I disagree. I think it's actually popular. Um, but, yeah. you know, we have pilgrimages to, to rocks. In, you know, one very obvious religion. They, they love going to their rock. That's what I said. That's what it's called the Kaaba. It's the Kaaba. So we could have... I mean, everyone makes their pilgrimage to uh, Uluru. Maybe it could be part of an induction process for new Australians. Yeah. As that, that they have to maybe just... Maybe not just go to it. Maybe just walk around the base of it in a respectful manner. It takes a long like time. Yeah, well, you know... It's a bastard big thing, I tell you. <laughs> How dare you speak about our our next head of state like that? It's a bastard big thing. God save our gracious rock. Exactly. No, no, guys, I'm 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 sticking with what we've got. <laughs> I'm a commercially conservative when it comes to the republic. I don't like it. <laughs> Split up. Look, guys, I think that's about it. I think we've uh, we've exhausted the patience of our many many uh, listeners. If you, but uh, I should just say if you. Please do communicate with us. We've had a few messages, which is great of encouragement. We have an email address, only one just now. It's nick at radiobc.com. .com.au or .com? 
Just.com. That, that's a sign of a... Radio BCC.com. An international brand. We don't need Beautiful. AU. And um, what else was I going to say? Oh, you've got to subscribe to us on Apple and press five stars. That helps push us up the rankings and uh, tell all your friends about it. I think that's about it from the Six O'Clock Squirrel for this week. My thanks to Simon Collins, Tim Blair, Senator Matt Canavan. We'll be back for episode 12 of the Six O'Clock Squirrel next week. Praise the rock. Let's go, Brent.